Good thing, man. I had to answer Barbara. <laughs> we'll pick up this morning in the, I guess, kind of the second part of the study of the parable of the Good Samaritan as we're going through working through the parables of Jesus. And then next week we're going to have. So who's who's teaching next week, Gary? What's going on next week? You get oh yeah, we have a guest uh, seminarian coming from Louisville. Okay. Who's uh, on his way really to Israel for? A tour group with his school. Okay. Uh, he knows Alec, of course. He was in our youth camp. His name is Tim Stanton. Okay. He's in his early 20s, I think, and uh, he's going to do this Sunday school course. Okay. Next Any idea what it's on or anything? On Revelation 1. Revelation 1, um, okay. Some sort of a devotion from that chapter. But he oh, good. So you want to be here to encourage that brother Tim next week mm-hmm. if you can and uh, make, him feel, make him feel like he's certainly among brethren. So, you'll find this parable of... Actually, I call it the parable of the loving Samaritan because that gets much more to the heart of the parable than the good Samaritan. Um, In fact, I think calling it the good Samaritan almost sort of contradicts the very point that Jesus wants to make in this, um, the whole thing. Because part of the problem was the Jews didn't think very well of the Samaritans. So, to continue to call it the parable of the good Samaritan to me is to continue to misunderstand the point of the parable. Uh, the point of the parable has nothing to do with Samaritan's goodness or uh, anything like that. So, anyway, let's pray. And then if you want to turn to Luke chapter 10, we'll read the parable through again. And uh, and actually sort of what precedes the parable, because the parable is, as is the case oftentimes with Jesus, the parable is a response really to something one of the Pharisees, one of the scribes, one of the experts in the law said, uh, in attempt to sort of delegitimize Jesus. So, let's pray. Father, our morning t- together is such a blessed time. And we're, we're glad for it. We thank you that we have uh, <clears throat> guests among us this morning, that Larissa's family's with us, and the little one as well, Renee, among us. And we thank you for the miracle of birth, and thank you for bringing them through what was surely a difficult um, process. And we thank you for the sacrifice that we see modeled for us in motherhood and what is sacrificed in the literally sacrificing the body for the for the well-being and the life of another what a woman goes through is um is also a powerful example also lord uh, and a reminder as well so thank you for that blessedness and we approach your word this morning with humility and with uh, some zeal and with some fervency and with some real desire to understand you to know you better and in knowing you also, Lord, to then also know ourselves better and one another. So be pleased to work in this people this morning, your flock. You are our good shepherd, and it is our humble joy to follow you. Amen. I'm going to turn my phone off here if I haven't already. <clears throat> so Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. As they were going along the road, <clears throat> long chapter. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. So, uh, by way of a little review last week, we saw that what's going on here is the lawyer is putting Jesus to the test. He's not really looking for information. He showed a certain amount of disrespect. Typically, when you learn from a rabbi, you stand up to sort of ask a question of the rabbi. It's a respectful thing. But he stood up to test him. So, we sort of see what his... We sort of see what his intent is right along. Which again is often the very thing which prompts Jesus to jump into a parable. Lawyers, as you recall, are the experts in the Pentateuch. They know the law. They know it inside and out. And again, that goes just beyond sort of the the Ten Commandments. (coughs) And really, the lawyer did a pretty nice job summing up the law, as Jesus commended him for. Uh, Some additional background information. Recall that this road from Jericho down to uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho was called the Path of Blood. It was a well-known place where robbers would hang out. There were no stops along the way. There were a lot of limestone cliffs and ledges and things like that. Great places for lewd fellows of the Beza sort to sort of hang out and get ready to attack those that come along the way. That's right. That's right. That and the other one we came out. Who was I talking to? I was talking to Tony, I think, on the way out of Bible study. We were talking about superfluity of naughtiness. Things, things in the old King James you just can't capture anywhere else, right? Superfluity of naughtiness. Uh, I was just sharing that Aurora was doing a little bit on the way in. We also know that uh, Scripture really details for us the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And we traced the history of that a little bit to find out why it was that this animosity existed. And talked about the sort of mixing of Jews with uh, when they were in captivity, mixing with some of their captors, really, and sort of becoming this half-blood as the Jews saw it kind of thing. It's not, not, a, not a full-blood, not a full-fledged Jew, so to speak. And we looked at some scripture examples of that. Uh, we know that a Samaritan would certainly not be welcome in a Jewish town. And to go riding into a Jewish town with a half-dead, half-naked uh, Jew as a Samaritan hanging over your donkey was a really risky thing to do. Okay? That was not. That was not real. You were taking a real, a real chance doing something because people knew each other. I mean, they they could recognize you as a Samaritan just by the way you looked. Okay, it was not entirely different from our culture. We can recognize certain things about one another and get at least a little bit of sense of you know where somebody comes from. I mean, I may not be able to look at Randy and say that he's a logger, but I could certainly look and say he doesn't fit sort of the character profile of somebody from Natick or something. You know what I mean? He sort of doesn't have a not that all do, I don't want to over-stereotype, but he doesn't have that sort of elitist air about him, so to speak, um, that we can get east of 495. Again, let's not talking in generality. <laughs> the Levite would have the example of the priest to follow, okay? So we need to know a little bit about a priest and a Levite. Uh, uh, so, uh, Levite. So, uh, and I just actually encountered this as well as I was reading through 
something Old Testament the other day as David was setting up uh, the way in the order of things that the Levites were to assist the priests and so for the priests to come along and not see him and coming down from Jerusalem assuming that they're coming back from some sort of service in the temple if the priest were to pass him by and the Levite already knew that the priest passed him by then the Levite would probably do likewise knowing that I know the priest came here before I mean it's quite possible he saw that fellow and walked around on the other side as well and we also mentioned that uh, as far as leaving uh, leaving the gentleman behind in the inn, if indeed this if, if indeed the Samaritan didn't come back to pay, it's quite possibly that this this wounded Jew once he healed up could be sold into slavery to pay for the debt that was accumulated by him staying at the inn. So we have these little things going on in the background. <coughs> then quite importantly, we talked about eternal life and what is eternal life because. The lawyer stood up and asked, how do I inherit eternal life? So it's important for us to consider what eternal life is. And so we spent some time discussing that last week. We said that more than likely the way that the average sort of Jew at that time, <coughs> or even Samaritan for that matter, that was familiar with Daniel, from Daniel chapter 12, particularly verses 1 and 2, talked a lot about the resurrection to life and the resurrection to condemnation. And the things that would be in their mind would be this sort of, you know, uh, you know, what had life after death, so to speak. All right? Whereas a couple of weeks ago we talked about what does it mean? What is it? Really, we're concerned with life after life. And then we talked about how does one inherit anything? And why would the lawyer even ask the question that way? Why ask the question of why would I, how would I inherit eternal life? I mean, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And so that shows some confusion as well. Or maybe it was the lawyer's deliberate question to try to trip Jesus up that way to see if Jesus would catch on to the fact that he's asking a question about what do I have to do to sort of get something that we already have. Eternal inheritance doesn't come from doing. I suppose one can be disinherited. In our culture, we understand sort of what that means. But in that culture, I mean, inheritance was simply something you got more of as the firstborn, but everybody got a piece of the action. Okay? Even the if you read, again, read in the Old Testament, the women that had, there were no brothers in the family, and they thought it unreasonable that if the father passed on, the land should just all of a sudden not be there. So inheritance was something that was your birthright. Inheritance was your birthright. So for for this Levite to ask this question this way, again, I think was just uh, he was being a bit of a dirtbag to Jesus. All right, <coughs> the more you know the law, and, and in our case, the more you know Scripture, it can really be a weapon to promote your own self-interest. Okay. Oh, we have some. Amen from the audience. That may be her first amen, brother. <clears throat> and we talked about Jesus saying, do this and you will live. And so we had a little discussion last week on, is there a way outside of the grace of God? It, were, are there two ways to salvation, at least in theory? Is it possible that one can live a flawless life and thereby <coughs> have salvation? And where did that discussion go? Let's just sort of get a little bit from, from you folks on that. Be interested in hearing your thoughts. Yes, Wally. without faith, there can be no salvation. Mm -hmm. And you can you can try to be a good person, mm -hmm. but uh, without truly believing in Jesus mm -hmm. Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's and it's going to be extremely difficult anyway. To I mean, you're going to be tempted all your life. Sure, it's almost impossible to lead a perfect life. Well, I would say so. I think Mark. Paul gets to the, <coughs> he kind of cuts any argument off like that by when he says all have sinned mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. fall short of the glory of God. Right. Yep. So nobody can do it, but in theory, could they? Is the question. No. What do you think, Brother Gary? What sayest thou? Yes. Keeping the law. It says about 
Zechariah, mm-hmm. Luke chapter 1, mm-hmm. that they kept the law, uh, mm-hmm. they were righteous. How does it speak there? Um, um, keeping the law, mm-hmm. I believe is how it is. <coughs> and Paul says uh, in Philippians about uh, uh, keeping the law, mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. outwardly. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a form of mm-hmm. keeping the law, mm-hmm. but not the intrinsic mm-hmm. keeping of the law. Right. Not yep. the internal. Mm-hmm. Yep, Mark. But didn't David point out, he said, in, in sin my mother did conceive me, so mm-hmm. you're, 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 you're toast before you even are born. Well, we're, we're born, we are born in enmity against God. Yeah. It's the way it is. I read some very interesting stuff on this too, because if... If you're like me at all, that that thing sort of gauze at you in the back of your mind from time to time. You know, you get this sense of yeah, Tony. I was thinking, if, if um, is it in Romans that um, we've inherited the sin of Adam, mm-hmm. and we're, since we're talking about you know coming into the world a sinner, mm-hmm. that we don't actually have to sin in order to be a sinner. Yeah, you're, you're and born. I would think that we have broken the law um, before we're born because of being. Heritage sin from Adam. The, the, this term federal headship, which is you know just sort of a term I think that the church and theologians have thrown around for years, is uh, I found it easier to understand once I read this. Somebody was I was reading a commentary on Romans. He talked about the fact that you know like for, and he used it as an example Winston Churchill. He said when Winston Churchill signed a particular agreement, everybody that was in, a British person was sort of bound by that. They, they they became part of what that was. All the stipulations of that applied to them. So what he agreed to and what he did thereby came by his headship something that was that sort of bound everyone. Everyone became an enemy of Germany or something, by the way. Uh, and it's not, it's not an exact analogy, but it is a little bit helpful. We are born... Uh, we're born as slaves to Satan. We're born as slaves to sin. We just are. Mark? No, I was just going to uh, mention, you know, if the... If the U.S. government declares a state of war within yes. the country, yep. we back that up. That's right. So it's, it's very similar to what you said about church. And that's why the, the bumper sticker, he's not my president, is intellectual vomit. It really is. It's, it's just reactionary. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's empty-headed. It's, because when you stop and think about it, all you're really communicating is your own sort of visceral hate of the particular person that's president. The, this was first popularized when, I think, in, in George Bush's thing, and, and other people had it when President Obama was, and now President Trump. And it just shows, and I think that needs to be corrected. That's worth, that's worth to me, that's worth going up to the person driving that car and challenging them person. You know, I'm not picking a fight, just challenging them, saying, do you understand the Constitution that you live under? Because if you don't, you're missing out on a lot. Yes. Well, can We're getting a little bit off, off track here. Can you not... Uh, can you not uh, be dissatisfied with a person mm-hmm. and yet respect the office? Right. Yeah. And so I just say all that to understand that, you know, I, that's actually pr- probably a pretty good example. Yes, he is your president. <coughs> you know? Yes, he is. And, and in the same way, we are sort of bound by that reality. In any event, so this whole inheriting eternal life, what does it mean to be uh, like this? Uh, we know that Paul says somewhere, I mentioned this last week, if there was a law that could give life, then sort of faith would be in vain. If there was a law that could bring about righteousness, Galatians 3.21. And then last week we left off with this, when we were talking about eternal life. Eternal life begins here and now for us in Christ. Okay, Eternal life is not, I die and I'm out of here. For the Christian, 
Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. <coughs> Eternal life has already begun for us. Why? Because of our union with Christ and His resurrection from the dead. We are united to Christ in His death first and then in His resurrection. Because how could we possibly be united to Him in His resurrection if we're not also uh, united to Him in His death? So we're united to Christ. So eternal life is happening now. And that's why I said last week, perhaps it's better to ask when is eternal life uh, as opposed to sort of where is eternal life or what is eternal life. A better question is when is eternal life. So, and understandably, I don't think that you would fully know that or comprehend that. Although Jesus does say from the Scriptures you should be able to sort of bring that out. And indeed, Paul spent the rest of his life doing that from the Old Testament. So showing mercy and loving others is part of what it means to have eternal life here and now. If we are partakers of the new nature, if we're partakers of the divine nature, we need to understand that it's not a prescription for a future life only. It's evidence of life now. Showing mercy and loving others is evidence of life now. It, it, it is, as we said last week, to have sort of a spiritual pulse and to be breathing. And so Jesus asks the expert what the law teaches. Okay, and, and, and Again, we talked a little about why he refers to the law. And what can we expect from that? And of course, so many of the Jews, I think, did not understand. For some reason, they got the Mosaic Law so good. They got the Mosaic Covenant so good, but completely missed so much of Ezekiel and Isaiah, and particularly Ezekiel talking about the New Covenant and how the Spirit would be given. And I don't know how that was so missed. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that there's plenty written on that. But let's let's ask this since since the since our uh, our lawyer friend asked the question about it and Jesus responded and, and the lawyer responded to Jesus' question the way he did. What does it mean to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and, and all your strength? What does that mean, really? I mean, it's very easy to say when we love to we quote that to one another as if like you know we have a new commandment. The new commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit, and blah blah blah. As if we can actually people actually say no, you don't have to. We don't need to sort of... We're not living under the requirements of the Mosaic Code anymore. We're not. There's, there's little to nothing for us in the Mosaic Code as far as how to be in covenant with God is concerned. But, what does it mean, then, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Well, I would say to have an overwhelming desire mm-hmm. for the, not only for the personage of God, mm-hmm. but of the teachings of God mm-hmm. and uh, Christ. Jesus. Yeah, you really can't separate the two. You no, can't separate the person really. from the teaching because, uh, you know... And, 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 and to be um, desirous mm-hmm. to serve and, and, and to love and mm-hmm. to follow and to trust and mm-hmm. to obey. Yeah. So, what, what is it... So, how do we... Or maybe the better question is what things... Just, just keep this in mind. What things interfere with a, a whole mind and a whole heart devotion to God and a whole strength devotion to God because every single one of us if we're going to be honest this morning will admit that we do not love God with all our heart nobody in here does I challenge you on that right challenge me on that I mean nobody here does there's nobody in this there's nobody in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere on the entire planet that loves God that way 
I'm not sure. I want them to answer the first question yes. that you just asked. You know, how do we actually do that? I would say we love him by keeping his commandments. <coughs> we love him by loving by keeping whose commandments? Offspring, spiritual offspring. Mm-hmm. We love the brethren. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a way in which I can show my yes. love to the Lord, <coughs> and that yeah. I can be a worshiper of the Lord. That's yeah. my emotional side, where yeah. I can praise him, I yeah. can thank him, express my gratitude mm-hmm. from the yeah. depths of my being. Yes, you know, all that is within me. Mm-hmm. Bless his holy name. That yes. all that is within me, mm-hmm. I think, is what Jesus is uh, highlighting yeah. mm-hmm. when he talks about the whole person with yes. all these different yes. aspects of their composition. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Was there a second part too? You had just referenced the first part. No, I, I didn't know if I you wanted to address the, the second part. Second. Okay. <laughs> kind of like um, in John, John chapter 15 when it talks about abiding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, being that close where mm-hmm. you're like, connected to. Yes. Because in... in in reality, if we were to stop and think and meditate upon what it means to be united to Christ, I mean, that is such a profound reality. To the fact that we were united with Him in His death and in His resurrection, it's not something one can just sort of satisfactorily think about for a few minutes and then move on as if they've really gained something from that. I was reading something this week that says all you really need to do when you eat a meal, because our cravings are satisfied by just two or three bites of something, okay? Mm. So if you have a a craving for chocolate, rather than sitting down and eating a big one-pound Hershey's or Cadbury chocolate bar, you could have two or three bites, and that would satisfy your craving. The rest is just sort of our eating habits. Okay. Uh, it was even suggested that you know you could cut back on calories and that kind of thing in your life. You sit down to a meal, have three bites of potato, three bites of steak, three bites of beans. Okay, and already I'm in profound disagreement with this fool, whoever it is, right? As are you. But that's not the case with spiritual things. We have a spiritual craving that's not satisfied by two or three bites. Okay, we could never satisfy our craving to understand what it knows to be united to Christ, to be united to triune eternity. To have that be satisfied even in ten hours out of the week is an impossibility. It's just not possible. We can't begin to fathom the depths of that. We can't. It's, it's too much. We're limited. David knew that too. He said, I can't think of these things. It's, it's just hard. How do I... So, then what does it mean to love neighbor self? That would seem to be a little less complicated for us, but what does it mean to love neighbor and self? Because Jesus is getting at this. This is exactly why Jesus asked the question. The point out that, okay, you know that. Great, you know what's at the heart of the law, but how well are you really going to do that, Seth? I think the two commands are very connected because it practically works out to a matter of priority. Mm. In all things, for the first commandment, I'm putting... Christ's priorities mm-hmm. as my own. And then when I look at my neighbor, am I putting you know, their needs, mm-hmm. their priorities above my own as well? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So it's, it's very much of putting ourselves after mm-hmm. God and then others. Yeah. There's a certain sense in which Jesus, I think, is just driving home the need to see, for this lawyer to reflect on his self-absorbed being. Ken Bailey says the order is important. In other words, love God and neighbor self. The order is important. Experience dictates that it's very hard to love the unlovely neighbor until the disciple's heart is filled with the love of God, which provides the energy and motivation necessary for the arduous task of loving the neighbor. There's a guy that's honest with himself, right? We need to have our hearts filled with the love of God because loving, as Jesus said before, it's very easy to love those that love you. What credit is in there? There's nothing... That's a no-brainer, right? I mean, that's, it couldn't be easier. What do we really accomplish by that? 
but to love those who are genuinely unloving or unlovely. Uh, John MacArthur said this years ago, and it's always stuck in my head. He says, and, and I believe theologically it's true as mm-hmm. well. He says it's not, and I'm going to add part my part to it. It's not the same thing as the the humanist doctrine of self esteem. Mm-hmm. But the Bible assumes we love ourselves, we take care of ourselves, we mm-hmm. wash ourselves, we clothe ourselves. Yes. That's the reality of what it means to love self. Mm-hmm. So therefore, in one sense, to the lawyer, it becomes self-condemning for his mm-hmm. good answer Yeah. because he already should know how to take care of the man who's in the ditch mm-hmm. because he already assumes that he does take care of himself yeah, sure. so he already knows how to take care of his neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we can be like that. Mm. I was just thinking... Um, it's a dangerous thing. If we Every time you think you're weak in the nation. <laughs> it, happen, happen? it happens once Three a stooges. year. Uh, Every time you think you're weak just, in the nation. I was just thinking that... Um, I'm sorry. He says that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he opens up an answer. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I'm looking at is that if we compare ourselves to God, mm-hmm. then we would be we would have so low a self esteem. Mm-hmm. We, we, we could not compare ourselves mm-hmm. but God is telling us to love ourselves mm-hmm. in spite of that because we are perfectly and wonderfully made mm-hmm. by the creator so therefore it's kind of like a an encouragement to us to to look at ourselves and love ourselves as God's creation mm-hmm. and then to look at others mm-hmm. as God's creation and to love them as well you know it's an interesting point you bring up it's, it's really sort of a it's a derivative of what we're talking about because we don't necessarily know how to love ourselves and at times, right? Uh, we, we can love ourselves wrong. We can be overly harsh on ourselves. We can be underly <laughs> harsh on ourselves. We can be so many things that need help. Mm. And uh, But I think the bigger point Jesus is getting at is certainly, uh, you know, still it's a salient point. It's still right on. Yes, Tony? I was thinking that not only... Um you know, just satisfying our desires is somewhat of a, a way that we can relate to others, but also God has given us pain mm-hmm. and hurt and emotion. Yeah. And because of those things, I think that we can identify with mm-hmm. others, and therefore we can understand or we should understand um, when we're being hurtful or helpful. Yes. Yeah, that's a very good point. That is a good, that is a good benefit of pain. Is that and, that and that's a good apologetic point too, Tony. You know, you don't be afraid to use that in discussing when people talk about pain and suffering in the world. You know what I mean? Don't be afraid to use that with a person to say, "Have you ever thought that maybe some of the pain and suffering we experience is, you know, sort of motivates us to sort of address the pain and suffering that's in the world?" You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, the problem in the world is, is man loves himself too much mm-hmm. and doesn't love his say, his neighbor enough. Yeah, that really is. Yeah. Well, that's a, at the end of the day. I think that's a big problem we all have. We want to know, is our neighbor, our brother, a, a Christian, yes. a fellow Christian, or is it right. uh, the world in general? Right. And we're going to get to that, because Jesus is getting to that. Jesus is deliberately getting to that. That's a very Jesus had that in mind when he asked the question, I think. And I have that in my notes here. We'll address it. Uh, so, you know, Jesus responds by referring to the Scripture. Then he tests the lawyer to see how well he knows it. For the law points to something beyond itself. That's why Jesus asked the way he did. The law points something to something beyond itself. Jesus says, I've come... I mean, Jesus is that to which 
the law appointed for a variety of reasons that you know we don't we don't have to get into. Yeah, <laughs> that, isn't that that's like music, isn't it? That is, I mean, yes. Yes, we're going to get to that. We are exactly to get to that. So, so what do we see? Jesus, I think, uh, this is the neighbor. Uh, how do we love neighbor itself? I think that the Samaritan in the parable models this for us. This is Jesus' answer to the sort of question behind the question. This Samaritan completely models what it means to love neighbor itself. And, you know, Jesus confirms the state of the first relationship, which is love towards God, by addressing that of the second relationship, which is love towards neighbor. One is a sort of uh, barometer of the other. First John 4.20. Anyone? Anyone who does not love... Oh, anyone who does not love God cannot... Paraphrase. does not love his brother. Yeah. He's a liar. For mm-hmm. he who loves his brother whom he has seen cannot exactly. love. Yeah. He does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot yeah. love God whom he has not seen. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. That's, that's the SFV, the Seth Fuller version. <laughs> it works. It works. Yes. Oh, was it Royce? Royce. Cool yeah, name. I, can't I don't know any Royces. It's like great. I know a Royce. It's a cool name. I can't remember the passage, but I believe that Jesus sort of switches the the focus mm-hmm. um, in that command where he says to um, in loving your neighbor mm-hmm. to love um, your neighbor as mm-hmm. I have loved you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to love one another as I have loved you. And I think the one another thing fits right in well with the whole neighborly concept. I think we'll see that as well. So. Yeah, assuming that they understand how Jesus has loved, has loved them. That's why it's so important that we understand what. This is why it's so important that we understand grace and get grace first and foremost above everything. Because mm-hmm. you know the grace proceeds from the love of God, uh, and love proceeds from the grace of God. But really, love motivates God in a sense to give us His grace, and we need to see God's grace more than we need to see anything else, I think, before we can see anything else. It's the lens through which we must see everything else if we're going to understand the gospel and all that God has done in loving us and in keeping covenant with us. So, the Samaritan is sort of on a journey. Now, he had a plan and he had previous commitments, okay? He's on his way. He's doing something, like we all are, okay? How quick are we to help someone in need when we're on our own daily journeys? Right? Our destination certainly becomes our priority, doesn't it? Our goal becomes our doesn't it? I mean, and to some extent, we have a job to get to. We have, you know, somebody waiting to uh, pick them up or something like that. Um, we're all doing something. And that can be such a priority to and how do we know how much of a priority it is how stressed out do you get in the process of getting from point A to point B whether it's on your way to work and you know it's traffic or there's this or there's that you know and I think that we can we can measure where we're at by those things you know we can measure how yes this is again no way to minimize our keeping our commitments and keeping our word that's all very important but as we sort of sneak the sovereignty of God in here we understand <coughs> We're coming and going. We're doing this and that. If we're completely freaked out about, you know, got to get there, got to get there, got to get there, we can we can miss out. We can miss out on loving others. Uh, oil and wine provided comfort and antiseptic to promote healing. All right, this was sort of a first century Palestinian first aid kit, if you will. Okay, 
Um, obviously, the wine was sort of an anesthetic type property, uh, as well as an antiseptic to clean out germs. Uh, so, this man didn't spare it. This Samaritan did not spare that. Now, so I asked myself the question, why was he carrying oil and wine? Okay, why was he carrying oil and wine in the first place as he's going down this road? Well, if he knows the reputation of this road, maybe, and I'm just reading in between the lines with it, maybe he was preparing to perhaps have to deal with this himself if he were to get beaten up and robbed or, or whatever the case may be. He's prepared. You know, some people are prepared for everything. Uh, I'm taking care of my brother-in-law's cat while he's gone away with my daughter, gallivanting all over Europe. And he's got everything specific. He's got the he's got the food laid out for day and night for the cat. And he's got little little you know post-it notes on the light switches. Turn this light off. Turn this light on. You know, use this scoop here. Or use this scraper. For, uh, everything is like oh, great. I'm going to have to think. I can just sort of yeah, exactly. So and this guy he thought about this. Perhaps he thought he might be robbed at some point. Maybe he thought I'm going along this road that has a reputation for people being hurt. I'm going to have this with me so that I can help someone if they need it. I'd like to think that's the case because I just think that'd be neat. Yes, Mark. Yeah. How many people have a first aid kit in their car? I don't. I mean, I, I, I've taken first aid, so I know how to help someone. Uh, you can't perform first aid on yourself, you know. You can't give yourself mouth to mouth. You can't give yourself chest compressions. So. It's a good skill to have. But I just wonder these things about this guy. Knowing, again, knowing uh, what it was like, maybe he was just prepared to be helpful. Okay? Maybe he was just prepared to be helpful. It's like, I don't know what would be a good example in our lives, but maybe if you know you're going through an area that you typically always see, I don't know, people have different thoughts about do you give money to somebody begging for money in the street and that kind of thing. But supposing you're the kind of person that, yes, Maybe we just know the word well. Yeah. You know, so we're prepared to speak yeah. the truth appropriately into people's lives. Yeah, I think we can always be prepared to speak. I think it's a great point as well to be prepared to, to engage people that way. But obviously this man, you know, and again, not that that's not a good point, but backing it up a little bit. And this was the point that Mike made last week. It was a very good point. He says the way that they would look at this parable is, uh, in, in ministering among the Haitians is... <coughs> Relief, rehabilitation, and uh, I forget what the other one was. There were these three R's that he gave, but the first thing he would do is be tending to his needs. You know, tending to his needs. And then uh, and, and then getting him sort of back to where he should be. How did things get to where they are? And then being able to address it from there. So there's, uh, it can be many steps in this sort of a thing. Um, I just, I, I don't want to waste a lot of time, but. In, in that, in those days, when the Good Samaritan stopped to help somebody, that person actually needed a serious. It was visible that that person needed serious help. Mm-hmm. Today, I mean, I'm, I'm driving down uh, the expressway, uh, the um, what do you call it, uh, 290 mm-hmm. highway, uh, going into Worcester, and I see this guy, and he's got a sign, homeless. Uh, anything will help. Mm-hmm. And and my conditioning in my mind is that I don't want to give him money mm-hmm. because if I do, he may either do drugs or drinking. Mm-hmm. That's the world today. Mm-hmm. Yet, I'm also uh, uh, having a problem with not helping him mm-hmm. because what is 50 cents? Mm-hmm. You know, what is a quarter? What is yeah. It's hard to know. I mean, if you knew that ahead of time that he's going to take that and buy liquor, 
you know, what, what do you do? You say to yourself, well, I did the good deed, but if he does it, it's his business. Well, that's a little self-righteous and pompous. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Do, you, do you just give it to him with the hope that he actually does have need? Because I'm like you. I've seen the same thing. I saw a guy begging outside a supermarket in the parking lot, parking lot of a supermarket. And I came out of the stores back in the days when I was selling the Pepsi. And I came out. The car had pulled around, opened up the trunk. He loaded up the trunk of a very nice car, and off they drove, you know. So I, I know what that's like. I, I know what that's like. And I know a lot of people... A lot of places in the city of Worcester, for example, you know those people are addicts and alcoholics. You know? I suppose you could stop and ask them, can I take you to uh, rehab or something? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But um, the Samaritan did not get to know the victim and so develop a neighbor relationship with him. He proved that such a relationship already existed in his mind. He didn't get to know this. He didn't develop a neighbor relationship with this. The, 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 the relationship in his mind already existed. He was a neighbor really, the Samaritan, in the truest sense. He was a neighbor in the truest sense. The Samaritan stays with the beaten victim all night long, seeing to his comfort. Okay, so again, wherever this guy was going, he delayed it to take care of this guy, the priest. You know, this is what can happen when you, when you think you're such an expert in the law. The priest probably looks and says, well, that might be a dead guy. If I touch him, I'm defiled. I'm going to walk across on the other side of the street. Who knows? Right? So the Samaritan's oil and wine his money, his donkey, his commitment to pay, his time, his journey to do whatever he was doing, he transferred self to neighbor. He completely transferred self to neighbor. And everything that he did, including his reputation, his reputation even, he was willing to put that on the line. Okay? And our reputations, again, can be so important to us. If we were half as concerned about God's reputation as we were our own, what a church, the churches that the Lord Jesus will be, Right? And we're hopefully getting there. Martin Luther said, But know that to serve God is nothing else than to serve your neighbor and do good to him in love, be it a child, wife, servant, enemy, friend. If you do not find yourself among the needy and poor, where the gospel shows us Christ, then you may know that your faith is not right and that you have not yet tasted of Christ's benevolence and work for you. It's a, now, that's a statement sort of encased in sort of a much larger treatise of his on what it means to love but the point that he's getting at is if indeed we have tasted the benevolence of Christ if indeed we've seen the riches that he's emptied himself of if indeed we've seen everything that he sacrificed so that we could have that we'd have an understanding and we would be a much better neighbor just by virtue of the fact of understanding and this is why we need to understand God more and what he's done this is why we need to experience more of God and what he's done this is why we need to avail ourselves of the scriptures this is why we need to avail ourselves of the fellowship with the saints this is why we need to avail ourselves of hospitality this is why we have to be among people deliberately that we know are hurting either spiritually emotionally physically and make it our priority make them our priority not just their situation but to make that person our priority and that's difficult. It's difficult to put someone else ahead of yourself. I know that Camp Impact this year is all about Philippians too, right? The whole book of Philippians. Oh, the whole book of Philippians. Okay. Well, you could make the whole camp just about Philippians too. Uh, who gets the Philippians 2 portion, by the way? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. All right. We get like 10 speakers. So. Because to me, Philippians 2, man, I'll tell you, you could live there for a very long time. We will live there for a very long time. Um, but to see all that Christ gave up, you know, the whole um, self-emptying thing. You know, the whole second chapter of Philippians, you know. Um, 
that can change us within. It's the only thing that will. We're never going to be self-motivated to help. We're never going to be self-motivated by law to help. That's why the law could never create a pure heart in a person. All the law could do is expose an impure heart. There's never going to be a law. There's nothing the government's ever going to pass. No amount of guilt is going to. Okay, so even if it were true, so in political banter that goes on, right, um, for, okay, so, so for example, the Republicans pass a certain budget and the Democrats will respond with children are going to die and old people are going to die and you don't care. Or people will say to me, or might say to you something like, oh, you're not concerned about women's rights. Excuse me, I have a daughter and a wife. I mean, of course I'm concerned about women's rights. Probably not in the way you're talking about them, but, you know, I'm concerned about the person. Are we concerned about other people? Not just in how can we meet their needs in a way that accrues to us some favor from God. It would be very tricky, right? In other words, thinking that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to garner some favor by God if I'm kind to this person. If you're there, you got to get out of there. You're in a rut. It is only when we see what God has done for us in Christ that we could anyway be so overwhelmed with a response to the love and joy that it is just as natural for us to do for others as it is for us to exhale after we inhale. It just is. James Montgomery Boyce said, We are not true followers of Jesus until we are ready to give whatever is needed at whatever cost. Hmm. I, like, I like it when people say things that just sort of remove any of the yeah buts, you know. And Simon Kistemaker, just quoting a few guys that have said some neat things. The parable is not a story of someone who did a good deed. It's an indictment against anyone who has raised protective barriers to live a sheltered life. Wow. <laughs> right? I mean, kiss the maker. What a profound statement that is. And why does he bring that up? He goes on to elaborate. And this is what I think Jesus had in mind when he addressed the whole neighbor thing, going back to your point and yours question. The Jew lived in a circular world. He placed himself at the center, surrounded by his immediate relatives, then his kinsmen, and finally the circle of all those who claimed Jewish descent and who were converts to Judaism. Okay? The word neighbor has reciprocal meaning. He's a brother to me and I to him. Thus, the circle is one of self-interest and ethnocentrism. Mm. So, to the Jew, the only person that would be considered a neighbor is the Jew. Okay? In their self-interest and in their ethnocentrism, which, what does it mean to be ethnocentric? If you take that word apart a little bit, somebody help us with that big tongue twister. Ethnocentric. What do you suppose that means? Only concerned about your ethnic race. Yeah, exactly. Concerned about you and only about you. Uh, because I have to do a lot with our sales team at Pepsi and the sales app that they use I look well into these things and find out the features of them we have this particular sales app and in that sales app you can get a little virtual pin you know the pin that you see in little pin cushions where you get an electronic virtual little pin for every opportunity around the location you are at as a place for potential business okay so you get the uh, you get the GPS that says okay I'm basically here now with this church and it will go within sort of 10 miles and there's a pinpoint there for every opportunity for code red Mountain Dew 20 ounce. Okay? And this is how we need to think of our neighbor. We, we are in this spatially sort of located here. Anybody around us, as long as we're around, a person in trouble is never someone else's problem. As long as we are here, our neighbor is where here is. It's not someone else's problem as long as I'm there and as long as you are there. It's never somebody else's problem. 
And first of all, it shouldn't be a problem. It should be an opportunity to love in the first place. That we could just rephrase it the way it should be. There's opportunities for love and ministry all the time, all around us. And so, we need to take a look at our love limits. Because this is what Jesus was doing as well. He was pointing out to this brother how limited his love is by asking him the question. And then the brother giving the, and then this, this Jewish uh, man giving the answer. And then Jesus giving this parable to point out, yeah, you answered correctly, but you really know nothing about what you just said. Are you more inclined to give aid to certain types of people? In other words, does prejudice affect you of fulfilling the law of Christ, which is to love one another as I've loved you? As Royce pointed out. Okay? Here's an example of that. Years ago, I may have mentioned this before, years ago at another church there was a trip being planned to France for ministry. This was very shortly after 9-11. Okay? And there were some people that were considering going to France but decided not to after that because France was not with America and some of the others in the coalition. So they decided they weren't going to go on this mission trip because of France's political stance. Okay? That's embarrassing. That should be embarrassing to that person. They should be throwing dust on themselves and repenting in sackcloth and ash for such an attitude. But what geographic, ethnic, socioeconomic, or political limits are there on our love? So too, then, is our love for God limited. Politics, socioeconomics, geography, ethnicity, all of these things will place a limit on our love for God because they become more important than what it means to love God beyond those limits. And I think by looking honestly at these areas, we'll find precisely where we're not loving God. And I don't think it's that difficult because all we have to do is look at what's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of thus and such a person or thus and such a group or thus and such a... It's not that complicated. We make it complicated by trying to hide it away and say that I don't have that. And in doing so, we make it very complicated to figure it out because we've blinded ourselves to the answer. I was thinking about uh, the immigration issue in our country, okay? And I think that, um, you know, are we zealous, are we as zealous to pray for the immigrants that are here illegally as we are to appeal to the law as a reason to keep them out? Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be order and there shouldn't be a way to, you know, we, we obviously it doesn't make sense because there's also a loving neighbor part that says you don't just allow someone to dump somebody next to you that, is bad for you. I mean, there's tuberculosis now in some schools in Texas. Tuberculosis. We killed that off a long time ago in this country. Right? So it's not, it's not neighborly for me to just afflict somebody else. It's not my job to give the shirt off of someone else's back. Right? But are we as zealous to pray for them and to pray for a solution as we are to appeal to the law as the reason for keeping them out? Right? So again, it's not that the law is bad. That is a good law. We should have proper limits. We should, all those things, okay? Things that we can, I think everyone could agree on. But is that all we do? Is sort of appeal to the law? Yeah, you're letting them in. Scumbags coming in here. Dirty, filthy, this and that. We, can't, we got too many people. We can't. Do we sound, do we listen to what we sound like sometimes as people? Right? Do we love? And I sometimes ponder whether or not government is as intrusive as it is today because the church hasn't paid down enough on its debt of love. And that's kind of where I, I want to leave that. I, I want I have one other thing in the last five minutes I want to get to. But do... Is the government as intrusive... And I, I think there's a lot of reasons why it is. I, you know, I don't want to get into... But I wonder if in some ways... 
the government hasn't become as intrusive as it is because the church hasn't paid down enough on its debt of love that we all have. The scripture says we have a debt of love that we owe every man. And I think we always need to be sort of paying down on that debt. Although it's never a debt we repay. It's a debt we continually, gladly put money out on. So our, our spiritual um, riches. Yeah. How do you deal, how should we deal we're talking about that we should love our neighbor and love our brethren. Well, love our neighbor anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we deal with people's hatred, with people's uh, negativity uh, constantly? Mm-hmm. They're constantly negative. They're constantly uh, evil-minded, wicked, uh, looking to uh, mock others and mm-hmm. make fun of others and discredit others. How, do we, how are we supposed to deal with those kinds of people? Just tell them you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. <laughs> funny you should bring that up, actually. Funny you should bring that up. That's the last thing I wanted to get to because I read something that... Uh, are you all familiar with James White? James R. White, yeah. Christian apologist. Yeah. He said... Uh, he was writing something this morning. It's a little bit... Uh, I don't like to read lengthy from other people from the pulpit. I don't mind doing it so much from here because it's just a little more teaching. Not that it's always wrong from the pulpit, but... God, I'm always giving out disclaimers. Do you ever notice how often I give out disclaimers? I'm like a bad movie critic. James White said, love, gospel, gospel proclamation, and he's writing this in response to what happened in London, right? You saw what happened in London yesterday. So if you didn't see what happened in London, uh, a van full of thugs drove through a crowd of people on London Bridge, literally ran a bunch of people over, then all jumped out of the van and just started stabbing people at random. Okay. Seven have died. There's like 48 people in hospital. Many of them have life-threatening injuries. So, um, and they said, you know, we do this in the name of Allah. So, James White says, Love, gospel pro- proclamation, the proper duty of self-defense. How do I hold together my deep conviction that the only weapon we have been, quote, given as the church to battle evil, including radical Islam, is the gospel with my conclusion that as individuals in a violent situation, we have a duty to resist such evildoers and to protect ourselves, our loved ones, and others. It involves thinking in proper and clear categories. The time for gospel proclamation is each and every day, in our lives, in our contacts, whenever God gives us an opportunity. But when God gives man over to the deepest, darkest desires of his heart, so that, even due to religious deception and zealotry, he seeks to take the lives of others through violence, the time for preaching is past. A new situation has arisen. And in that situation, we have to seek to save the lives of the non-violent from those who have chosen violence, even through the use of violence itself. The strong man of 1121 has to be bound, because if he is not, he will use his strength and all of the means to protect himself, his family, and his property, and his right and good and evil. We cannot live in peace according to God's law if we cannot protect ourselves and those in charge. So I thought it was good to see this man who's got such a high theological mind and apologetic mind grapple with this issue. I was glad to see him do it because sometimes you, you see these guys and all you see is their intellect and their mind. But here this brother's grappling in his heart. And this, you made me, you know, I was going to share that anyway, so I'm glad you asked the question. It was a good intro. Um, and I think in a certain way we can ask the question in reverse now. If I was to love my neighbor by standing in to defend him for his life, which we would do, I would think, right? Uh, then I, I should be able to do the same for myself to properly love myself. I don't have to allow someone uh, to just sort of overwhelm me with force and other people. So how is that person a neighbor in that case? Well, I think 
you know, you've tapped into something that is, um, you know, how do we take the concepts that Jesus just gave here and apply them? I think we continue to do all the time. If we think of our neighbors not just situationally, as a situation ethic, but think in terms of all those around us that need the gospel, need the love of Christ, we preach that, we do it every day. But there also is, is uh, that doesn't mean that we just sort of stand back and let someone bludgeon people to death. I mean, it's foolishness. If that was the case, then the church's cause and the pro-life cause would be a waste of time. Right? Why would, why would we defend life at all? Mm. So I think we have the right to defend. I think something... So, Brother James White is talk, talking in terms of priorities and categories. Okay, At that moment, the gospel proclamation is not the main thing. At that moment, defending someone's life is... Just like at that moment, you know, he didn't revive him slightly enough and go on to wax eloquent about why the Jews are wrong to think about Samaritans the way they do. Look at what I just did for you. Right? Right? So I think that it's important. And it's, it's a good question. It's just how do we... Okay, how, does, how do we orient ourselves towards thinking about this in the bigger picture of every day, what we see going on all around us? Um, and even that, that wicked, deceived, uh, radical uh, Muslim, we need to think of in some ways as a neighbor who, who needs prayer, for salvation, pray for conversion, pray to understand love, pray to understand, God forbid, even though he never gets saved, that he understands what love is in some way, or experiences love in some measure. You know what I mean? Um, what do we do as the church to sort of combat radical Islam? We can't just always point to the government, you know, kind of thing. So how, how, how are these people sort of our neighbor? And... Uh, I think we have to meditate on the scriptures that we have on this. We need to think about this. Yes. It just so much has to do with our heart attitude mm. as it motivates all of this. Show. So often when we're responding to people around us, I have to ask myself, am I doing this because I'm annoyed at this person? Yeah, do sure. I, do I want to shut them up? Do I hmm? want to win? Yeah. Or for something like radicalism, do I want to see them just get what's coming to them? Sure. Or do I long to see them hmm? come to know Christ? Because there is much of an enemy of his mm-hmm. as I was. Yes. Even if I'm on the way to work and I'm running a little late and I see a person that looks like they're going to have a difficult time with that flat tire. If I see a healthy guy like me, I'm just going to... Tough to be you, but i got to go. But if I see an older gentleman or older lady, I don't care if I'm going to be late for work or not. I'm going to stop or at least stop with them, see if they're okay, call 911, do they have triple... You know, do something to help. You know, it's not my time. There's not much that's my time um, in that way. And so, I think if we think in these larger categories, we'll find the answers. Because all we have to think about is what's the priority in my mind right now, really. And, but the only way we're going to, the only way that our minds, our hearts, our souls are going to be even trained to thinking outside of ourselves is by constantly being exposed to the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God and what he's done for us. And the, what he's done in in completing the covenant himself. Let's go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant and then there. God did everything. When he when He passed through the, the, the chopped up pieces of animal, right? Which again, in those days, if you made a covenant, you did so by passing between these chopped up pieces of animals. And what you were doing in that case was saying, if I don't fulfill my turn of the covenant, let, let me be like this. Yeah. Well, while Abraham was sleeping, sleeping, God did that. He passed through it. And so when God's people violate the covenant, we could be the, like the pieces of broke, but no. Instead, God provided the solution by taking on humanity Himself. Mm. And therefore, 
taking the full weight of that broken covenant upon himself. It's just absolutely amazing. And if we live in that place, then we're going to be very good neighbors. Amen? Amen. All right, Wally, you want to pray for us? We'll go up. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for the love that you have shown us. Lord, as we have heard your